Let me begin with an old-timey quote from Matthew Henry. Anybody familiar with Matt? What's his background? You all know that Matthew Henry wrote a very, very famous one-volume Bible commentary, which I think um, is probably more valuable than most pastors of my persuasion think it is. Uh, but what's his background? Is that guy a Baptist? Well, Baptist, if people of your persuasion don't think it's helpful, he's probably not. People of my persuasion, I mean people who are like seminarians who look down on it as like, oh, you don't need to be reading that drivel. <laughs> right, yeah, one volume. Are you kidding me? Did he write it in crayon? <laughs> he actually was Methodist. And we are going to read from Keech's Catechism uh, a little bit today. Keech being, Benjamin Keech being one of the signers of the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith uh, and a really great early Baptist for uh, developing, systemizing our doctrine and, and being able to teach it to children. Uh, and he actually, in his one-volume commentary I came across one day years ago, takes a swipe at Benjamin Keech, which makes me mad. And in, in the same breath as he like lifts up and, and kind of extols the virtues of Origen, uh, who's really wonky all over, but he's, he's basically saying many, many people uh, are skimming the surface of things like Keech, and very few are going very deep into, you know, up to their hips in it, like, uh, like Origen, who if you've ever read Origen's, uh, for example, explanation of the parable of the Good Samaritan, where, like, Jericho represents the moon, and, like, it, you know, it's all this stuff. Uh, the Good Samaritan's his consciousness is scanned, and he's part of the moon now. Yeah. Um, but uh, that's neither here nor there. He's not one of ours, is what I'm saying. Uh, and this is what he wrote about his baptism. He wrote it in his treatise on baptism. I cannot but take occasion to express my gratitude to God for my infant baptism not only as it was an early admission into the visible body of Christ, but as it furnished my pious parents with a good argument, and I trust through grace a prevailing argument for an early dedication of my own self to God in my childhood. If God had wrought any good work upon my soul, I desire with humble thankfulness to acknowledge the moral influence of my infant baptism upon it. But, but how? That I couldn't tell you, and that he doesn't tell us. Uh, the, the disconnect between there being something for his pious parents to kind of hold on to as uh, an early admission into the visible body of Christ. We admit the children of believers into the visible body of Christ, certainly not, not as members of the body, but uh, as uh, members of the broader community, and certainly we, in dedicating children, and not only the parents, but also uh, the congregation at large, making commitments to help raise this child uh, into a young man or young woman who will serve Jesus Christ and, and learn the gospel, hear the gospel, respond to the gospel, do everything we can to uh, help lead them along the narrow way uh, in the same way. Uh, kind of a, a signpost along the road, this is the earliest point at which this person becoming a Christian has been brought before the church. And you can do that without taking the sacrament of baptism and applying it to an infant who has no faith whatsoever, no understanding of what's going on, uh, and all the rest. So we talk about re-baptism in the Baptist church. We talked about it quite a bit last week. Uh, we talked about how here it is greatly encouraged, but not required if one has been uh, confirmed. And those who earliest in the Reformation, the Radical Reformation, required rebaptism, had a different name. They weren't called Baptists. They were called, anyone know? Can't hear you. Anabaptists. Anabaptists, yes, which means to be baptized again. And a lot of people then want to draw a line in our history between the Anabaptists and the Baptists and say that we find our roots in the Anabaptists in that wing, that extreme wing of the Reformation. We do not. Uh, in fact, I think I mentioned last week that our earliest, one of our earliest confessions on the very cover of it 
says, Confession of those who are commonly, though falsely, called Anabaptists. From the very beginning, they were like, stop calling us that. We're not with them. It didn't help that in order to get a valid baptism, a lot of early Baptists went to the Netherlands, found Anabaptists like Mennonites, etc., and said, would you baptize me? Uh, And then came back to England. Um, So there was certainly some fraternal connection there. Uh, But no, we are not part of the same uh, branch of the Reformation as, say, the Amish or the Mennonites uh, or the Quakers. Uh, We are uh, part of the Puritan branch of the tree that is the Reformation. So I want to get into a few other catechisms and talk about what they say. The next one is 77 in ours, and that is about, are the infants of, isn't that it? Let's go ahead and read that a minute uh, first. 77? Yeah, Aaron, I need you to lead it. I don't have it with me. Oh, great. Okay. Question 77. Are the infants of such as are professing to be baptized? Do you want me to try that again with a better cadence? Okay. Are the infants of such as are professing to be baptized? Answer. The infants of such as are professing believers are not to be baptized because there is neither command nor example in the Holy Scriptures for their baptism. All right, take it from the top, you guys. That was... <laughs> Actually, that was really well done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It wasn't going where I thought it was going. Infants of such as are professing. Um, yeah, you, you know when you read old commentaries and, and uh, you read even you know, Spurgeon, etc., there's a continual reference to professors. And if you didn't know what they meant, you'd think that he was getting down on you know, academia, like uh, all these professors. But no, when they talk about uh, professors, often it's drawing a distinction between those who profess faith in Christ and those who embody it. Here, I think those who are professing are those who are part of the church, and we presume to be regenerate, born again, and yet that doesn't mean that their uh, infant children are the proper subjects of baptism. I'm going to go to uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Again, this is probably the, this is definitely the point at which there's most divergence between our catechism and the Westminster, uh, and uh, there's really only a couple other places where it does diverge. Uh, question 94 and 95, I'll read What is baptism? Baptism is a a sacrament wherein the washing with water in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost doth signify and seal our ingrafting into Christ and partaking of the benefits of the covenant of grace and our engagement to the Lord's, to be the Lord's. Anybody have an issue with that answer? I don't either. Yeah, it sounds great. Question 95 is where really the the difference comes into play between Baptist and, and Presbyterian or Reformed theology. To whom is baptism to be administered? Baptism is not to be administered to any that are out of the visible church till they profess their faith in Christ and obedience to him, but the infants of such as are members of the visible church are to be baptized. And then there are no follow-ups, explanatories, etc. Now this is the shorter catechism. Certainly when you get into the larger catechism, you have uh, more of that. So that means that like family that wasn't part of the church came and said, will you baptize my infant? They would say no to that one. Yeah, well, yeah, certainly. And that happens a lot. Uh, And I've been listening lately uh, to a podcast called the Catholic Talk Show podcast. It's great. The priest is hilarious and they they talk about weird subjects. Uh, And you, you hear a lot of what people go to priests with, which is some overlap with what people go to pastors with, but other, you know, like, for, for example, if you go to a priest and say, I want, you know, you do our wedding on the beach or a funeral where we scatter ashes on the beach, they're going to turn you down flat. Like, uh, no, we, we're not going to do that. Um, but also the notion of people coming from outside the faith in a Protestant or Catholic setting, you'll often have parents of an infant to whom there's this nebulous value attached to I want to bring my child and kind of have my child blessed. Like you might have, you know, somebody come and pray their way through your house when you move in, just at the beginning. I'm not planning on going to church. I just want good vibes here. You know, you kind of want to bless this kid or get the kid uh, foot in the door or whatever. I don't know. I don't know what the goal is. I I also don't understand why people who don't 
attend a church and don't value church want to be married in a church. I mean, like, or, or want their funeral or the funeral of a loved one to be in a church where it seems at odds with the values of that person. But there is still, even in our post-Christian society, sort of this undercurrent. And, and that shows itself when somebody comes and says, I'd like my baby dedicated in a Baptist church or baptized in a, a well, almost any other kind of church when they don't belong to that community of faith they don't show any intention of, or they may say, oh yeah, uh, after that we plan to, this is always for me the, uh, the red flag. Oh no, we plan to start attending because we're going to want to raise this child in church. That's important to us. Okay, so we're going to do this in five weeks. The next four weeks, if I don't see you, we're not going to do it on the fifth week because you've shown me that you're not serious about attending uh, church and raising your child in the faith. Uh, and it becomes then... Uh, kind of the opposite issue on both sides. In, in the Roman Catholic situation, they're saying we've kind of made a mockery of this sacrament, which would wash away uh, the original sin and bring this child into membership of the body of Christ, make them a child of God, and now you're just going to ignore that. And here it's saying you're almost thinking of this in a superstitious, magical way, that apart from you actually as faithful parents raising this child in the faith, you think this is going to do something, and it's not. Um, it might be a great photo op, and maybe that's what some people have in mind. It's just kind of a joyous occasion, but what a weird empty occasion if it's a, a fiction. You know, you look back at it and go, yeah, this is your dedication. Okay. All right, Jim and Pam went and had their baby christened. We never, ever hear of them going to church other than that, and the pastor says their last name wrong. That's the big joke. Oh, that silly pastor got their last name. Well, why didn't she know the last name? Because they never go to church. Um, how to get on this? Oh, right, yeah, the, the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Uh, the, the question of when to be baptized is obviously the big uh, differentiator. It's not so much the question of whether this is um, a true and efficacious sacrament which communicates benefits of Christ to us. The, the Baptist church historically believes largely the same thing you read in question 94 of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Uh, the washing with water in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit does signify and see it's a sign and seal and it is a partaking of the benefits of the covenant of grace. Sure, yes, um, that's, that's all wonderful stuff. So when to be baptized being the question as Baptists, we do believe that immersion is the most biblical mode. We talked about that last week. Um, there's, there's a difference between believing what you believe, believing it is biblical, and insisting that everyone else fall in line with it if it's a secondary doctrine. Uh, we certainly do believe that if you read the scriptures and every time there's a baptism, you ask, does this seem to be a believer being dunked or the child of a believer being sprinkled or somewhere in the middle, it almost always insists the context of it, that it is a believer being dipped, and it never insists that it is an infant or, or any other mode besides immersion. Here's uh, the exposition of Keech's catechism. Are the infants of such as are professing believers to be baptized? And he gives a fuller answer, I believe. The infants of such as our professing believers are not to be baptized because there is neither command nor example in the scriptures nor certain consequence from them to baptize such. And then the follow-up question, are the subjects the divine word? Yes, they are baptized, men and women. Acts 8.12, someone look that up for us. And doth the silence of scripture concerning others amount to a prohibition? Yes. That's the whole answer. Yes. The silence of anyone else being baptized uh, is tantamount to saying don't baptize anyone else. What I find fascinating between the Reformed tradition in general and Baptists who are also in that family uh, is that a Reformed view of worship will say, and, and certainly baptism is an act of worship if if not much more, but it is still that, the, the view called the regulative principle of worship will say, if there's anything in a worship service that is not specifically commanded, we are not to do it. So if someone gets up and does say, 
sings a solo, or someone else gets up and does an interpretive liturgical dance, or someone, um, even to the point, I think of, I, I've heard it said, you know, don't get up and uh, give a pitch for this mission effort or something. The idea being that if it isn't commanded specifically, look back to the Old Testament and see how God dealt with people who got creative in worship. Nadab and Abihu uh, offer strange fire to God, and he just roasts them with his own fire from heaven. And they say, you see, don't get cute, don't get creative, just do what you're commanded to do. And then when it comes to baptism, they suddenly switch their approach and say, well, hold on, it never says not to baptize infants. Okay, it never says not to, you know, have a skit in worship either, but you insist that we not do that. Uh, and it gets very creative. Questions like, we talked last week about the household argument, that, uh, for example, the Philippian jailer is usually the one brought up. He believes, and they say, listen, let's go to your house, and they go to the house, they clean Paul's wounds because they've been beating him all day. And then he ministers to the people and the whole family is baptized. And you say, see, it's a covenant thing. The family is baptized. Well, the family ostensibly believed. That's what Paul was doing there. Telling them what Jesus had done when he died and rose again and how their faith. And then the argument, well, it doesn't say there's no infant, so there must have been an infant in that household. Balloon juice. Why would there have to be an infant in any given household? Uh, the, the length of time that someone is an infant is relatively short. We're assuming that that is where we're landing. Um, or, or that this, you know, the households all had so many children that you know, one of them is bound to be an infant. Or smacks of, it's five o'clock somewhere, let's have a drink at 10 in the morning, right? I mean, it, it, it's just looking to justify, I think. Wow, that was uncharitable to my pedo-baptist brothers and sisters. So sorry. Who's got Acts 8.12, by the way? I don't want to skip that. Uh, but when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. A lot packed into there for who is the proper subject of baptism. So what are the two things we see? One, it's... Adult men and women. Adult men and women, okay. And, and you know, the notion of who is a man or woman isn't starting at 18 when you can vote or 21 when you can drink, but rather probably 13 when you're bar or bat mitzvahed. Uh -huh. And then people who believed that specific message. And the sequence is they believed. And then they were baptized. And the fact that they believed is what makes them the proper subjects of baptism. What is it when the Ethiopian eunuch says, look, there's water. Is there anything to stop me from being baptized that, that Philip says? He says, no, there's nothing. Isn't it Acts 8, I believe? That's what I was just thinking. Oh, it's just right after. Read that little thing for us. It's, it's actually a great story. Let's hear the whole thing. Starting at... Right when Phil walks on the scene. Now an, oh, now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join his, this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you were reading? And he said, how can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe this generation? for his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and began, and beginning with this scripture, told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here's water. What it prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. 
And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. So we see a number of things there that inform uh, how and when one is to be baptized. Does anyone have the King James authorized version? No, I always count on somebody having the King Jimmy. Hold on, I see there's one on the shelf here. getting past the point when you can count on somebody having that. Yes. You know, you guys, what is happening to the church today? Here we go. So that's interesting. Philip doesn't actually say anything. He says, what would prevent me? Philip doesn't say anything. He just takes him to baptize him. At least in this version. Yeah, yeah. And, and there is a fairly big difference in the Texas Receptus that the, the King James is based on. Gosh, this has been wet or something. I, I love, too, that uh, it's right after he's heard the gospel. So Philip has said a lot. He's just... Right, you don't know how long they've been on that. They, yeah, they're, they're moving. It reminds me so much of the Emmaus Road. As they walk along, Jesus takes them from the beginning of the scriptures yeah. all the way through the end, saying how the Messiah had to die for the sins of the people and rise again, etc., etc. And then right when they get it, uh, they arrive where they're going, and then he breaks the bread and disappears. It's such a good story. Goosebumps all day long. Uh, and this same thing. They're going along a road. He's explaining what the gospel is, starting with that. How providential, too, that he's on this very messianic, um, just this picture of the death of Jesus Christ as a substitute for us. Uh, starts with that, takes him through the whole gospel, and that's in God's providence when they arrive uh, at, at water. Uh, in the King James Version, and in some of the earlier re- re- uh, revised versions as well, uh, as they went on their way, they came into a certain water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If you believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Well, that's really different. It is indeed. Does anyone have that as a footnote on in your ESV or NIV? Oh, yeah. Some manuscripts add all or most of verse 37. And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he replied, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Well, the version we're using in the service doesn't. doesn't have a note. No, I don't think it, it doesn't have a footnote, a text note? Oh, my gosh. That's actually not great. Nope. Uh, <laughs> The NIV has one right here, um, the, the very same, almost, almost word for word. If you believe with all your heart, you may. The eunuch answered, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. There is then two things. One, belief is required. And I remember this is translated by uh, the Church of England where infants are baptized. So it's not like they're trying to slip in some agenda. Uh, and two, specifically belief in Christ as the Messiah. Um, that, that Jesus Christ himself is the Son of God, which is one of the earliest confessions or creeds of the Christian church. I believe, in fact, that's really kind of a, you could probably build the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed outward from that statement, right? I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And if you look for verse 37 in your version, ESV, NIV, you will find that it does not exist. And this is one of the few places where the kind of conspiracy theory of the King James Version only people almost seems to hold water. They, they'll say, look, the NIV or the ESV or all these modern translations have removed all these very important verses about who Jesus is and his divinity, et cetera, et cetera. And you go, well, yeah, but what, they removed like 1% of the references to Jesus' divinity. This is a real long, what are they going to take one out every hundred years until they're gone? Well, and it's not like this is the only place that says, that somebody says Jesus is the Son of God. I mean, Peter says it. And, mm-hmm. um, right, but, it, but removing it as, uh, this seems to be a pretty important link in the story between him hearing the gospel and him going into the waters of baptism. But the reason they removed it is because it's not in earlier manuscripts. Right, yeah. So there are earlier manuscript families uh, then the, the Textus Receptus, uh, Sinaiticus, Vaticanus, and in those you don't find some of these. And, and what you do with text criticism is ask what makes the most sense. That somebody came across this and took it out, or that it wasn't in there and someone wrote it as a margin note 
and then it got interpolated into the text. Or some monk uh, or scribe saw this as a missing piece of the text and added it in. And obviously, the uh, committees behind all of the uh, modern translations we have represented here in this chapel thought that the latter made the most sense. And I, I do too. I do think that when you have these, even even like entire uh, pericopes, like the woman caught in adultery, where you say, you know, my footnote says that a lot of the early manuscripts don't have this or they don't have it here. Um, and you say, okay, well, even if it wasn't part of the original text, we have to recognize that this was such an early addition uh, that it was able to get this widespread status and become part of the received text that is then later translated. And something that long, it feels like that's not just a note in the margin. Like, that had to be a well-known sure. story. This, though, could be uh, a, a margin note. Right. And the fact that it would have been written in the margin early enough that it gets into the majority of extant manuscripts and is not questioned and struck from the thing. Uh, I think it does tell us that it, it, even if it's not original to the text, it falls in line with what the early church, uh, or at least the early medieval church or something, whoever's, uh, whenever it was added, uh, believed. Uh, and it doesn't seem to be pushing for the agenda you would expect. So it doesn't seem to be nefarious that it was added. It seems to be an attempt at clarification. I, I would say that if someone asked me what's to stop me from being baptized next week, my question to them would be along those same lines. Do you believe? Have you been born again? What do you believe about Jesus? What do you hold on to about Jesus? What's the most you important thing to you? did say that last week when you were asked. Yeah, right, asked yeah. that question in this room, and that's exactly what you said. Well, when you were baptized, did you believe? Right, and if the answer is no, and the desire to be baptized again is there, then okay, yeah, as long as we make sure that we're, be, we're believing this time. Yeah. I had kind of the opposite conversation recently with a friend where she was saying, well, I think, I think, I'm, a, I think I'm a Christian. I'm like, well, what do you believe about Jesus? And when she told me what she believed about Jesus, I said, you're not a Christian. Mm. You know, and that's fine, but it's good to know that you're not and not think that you're all right. <laughs> you know? Wow, that sounds like a really uncomfortable conversation. It wasn't. It wasn't. <laughs> Uh, the, the question that comes up often here for uh, the, the sort of linchpin question for should infants be baptized, should believing parents baptize their infant children, is does baptism replace circumcision? That is really going to be the ground of the case for infant baptism. And I'm going to have you guys watch an interesting debate about infant baptism uh, next week when I'm not here. And I think... Try to, try to get here and see it because it's, it's worth watching. Uh, but if it replaces circumcision, in, not only in its place as an entry into a covenant, but also in the timing uh, shortly after physical birth, then okay, yeah. But if it replaces circumcision in other ways, maybe we need to start at the beginning and say, how does this initiating right into a new covenant community answer to the initiating right into an old covenant community. And then we have to start asking, what was the nature of the kingdom in the Old Testament? And the answer is it was geopolitical, it was based in a particular place, and it was rooted in a particular people and a particular genealogy. Right? You had to be uh, unless you were going to come in via uh, proselytization, it had to be you were your mother was Jewish, and in order to enter into the temple and worship, you had to have a certain number of generations going back where you could say, yeah, you see, I actually am Jewish. And it was rooted in being a child of Abraham. In fact, that's kind of what people are saying to John the Baptist that sets him off at one point. Hey, we're children of Abraham. And he's like, don't think that that's going to get you in the door of the kingdom of heaven. God can raise up children of Abraham from these rocks, etc. In the new covenant, it's not based on physical birth or physical lineage. 
And it's not a kingdom that is geopolitical or rooted in one land. Now we have a reversal. Hey, we're going to be talking about those in, in this service this morning, where instead of one light shining real bright in Jerusalem, drawing the nations in, it's flipped. And he says, okay, from Jerusalem, you bring that light out to the ends of the earth, because this kingdom is global. It's not earthly and political and uh, based in geography. It is spiritual. It's not rooted in who your physical parents are, but rather, instead of birth, it's rooted in a rebirth. And so we can say, I think, that baptism does, in some ways, answer to circumcision as that one-time-received right of entry into the covenant community and then acknowledge that just like you become part of the new covenant community by being born again, a spiritual act, rather than being born, a physical act, you know, by water and the spirit, then you also enter through this initiating rite or sacrament in the New Testament after a spiritual birth, not after a physical birth. You can, you, can, you, don't, you can have your cake and eat it too in this case, I think. You don't have to argue against the connection between circumcision and... But at the same time, if we're going to allow arguments from silence, which anybody arguing for infant baptism has to, then there are a number of passages we can point to and say, if Paul was trying to tell his hearers not to insist on circumcision, saying, hold on a minute, we don't do that anymore. We don't require that anymore. That's not the sign anymore. All he had to say was, we baptize instead of circumcise. You know this. What are you doing going back to circumcision? And yet he never does that. So we're going to look at some texts as well where, where this uh, is the case. Uh, in Acts 2, uh, the... In fact, let's flip to it a minute. The Great Commission is being carried out, and we have a reference to... 3,000 being added to their number that day via baptism, which would be, I mean, quite a great day, even at like a mega church with like water slide baptisms where you just run up to the top and everybody dives in. I mean, that's a big, that's a big get for the church. You read that and you go, okay, they, the church just came into existence in its fullness because the spirit was just given that morning. They'd been given the Great Commission 10 days earlier. How did they know how to fulfill this vague commission vis-a-vis baptism? Well, Jesus had been teaching them for 40 days before the ascension. And I think that while we draw a distinction between descriptive and prescriptive passages in the Bible, and everything that the apostles did isn't a command for us to do. For example, holding all of their land and possessions in common. It's something they did. It's not ever a command for us to do. Um, You have to become some kind of commune or something. There are times in which it's clear that the church has information from Jesus because he spent 40 days explaining to them how to function after his ascension. And so in the Great Commission, which is about discipleship as much as it is about evangelism, right? Go and not make converts, but make disciples, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So baptism is actually part of discipleship. It's not something that happens before belief. It's something that comes out of your belief uh, and is part of following Jesus. We see this again from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. And this is why if someone gets on, like, I'm not good enough, I don't know if my faith is strong enough to be baptized, I need some time to, like, sort out my life and conquer some things, and then I'll come back and maybe I'll be baptized later. I've I've had a number of people have these conversations with me. I don't quite have it together yet. Nonsense! If you want to follow Jesus, you don't go and work it all out, then come and be baptized. We use water because you go in dirty. Like, that's the whole point of all this. This is discipleship. This is following Jesus. So when the Ethiopian eunuch says, why wait? He doesn't say, well, hold on. Give me a rundown on your whole life and tell me, you know, what kind of sins in the decadent court of Candace, the queen of Ethiopia, you are taking part in. No, he says, this is the beginning. 
We're going to dunk you in that water, and then when you get back, and of course, if you know anything about the Ethiopian church, you know, it's one of the most ancient and, and really most fascinating uh, kind of branches of the Christian church in existence. Also, they probably have the Ark of the Covenant. Just saying, I'm, I'm serious, man. Look into it. But I think that question, if you believe with all your heart, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, is at the core of it. Okay, do you have all of your demons conquered, quote-unquote? No? Oh, well, okay. Do you have, uh, are you a perfect example of faith in Christ for all of your neighbors? Have you tamed your tongue, which no man has been able to tame? No, sometimes I still hit my, my thumb with a, a hammer and, and swear. All right, let's go into the water. Let's, th- this is the next step after belief. I think we don't want to rush this, uh, and we, it's good to take time to meet together when you have the luxury and make sure people do understand the gospel and make sure people uh, are committed to following Jesus. And this isn't just maybe emotionalism welling up or something, but I also find great danger in putting it off a long time and putting up a bunch of impediments. The early church would start preparation at the beginning of Lent and baptize y'all up on Easter morning. And here at Judson, we have sort of followed that same pattern uh, whenever it uh, makes sense. You know, when we're coming up in some sense on, on Easter. In fact, uh, this Easter, we're doing at least one baptism. Okay, so this might be going off on a tangent. You don't have to answer it now if you don't want. But last time you were saying you get baptized into a church. Mm-hmm. This guy was going to a place where there was no church. Yeah, yeah. Did you make comments on it? I commented on it last week. You did? Yeah. Oh. I did. I commented on the existence of that, that that this is not primary. Uh, This as a public profession of faith, well, this is what most Baptists want to do with baptism in order to strip it of anything supernatural or sacramental. They say, this is just you standing up before people in this really powerful kind of object lesson way. And then everyone goes, oh, that's nice. Now you're one of us and we know it. And, and when you're baptized before a church, that is an element that you're saying to everybody, I want your help in, in my discipleship and I want to help you in yours. You watch me get baptized. So if you watch me wander off into sin, you have my permission to go and bring me back. Just like in one of the gospels, it's clear from context when Jesus talks about the shepherd going for the one who wanders away. It's not him. It's a concerned church member who's going after that lost sheep. But that's not the primary thing that's going on here. And it's certainly not all that's going on. And I think we can know that because there are instances in which someone is baptized. Let's look at another one. Uh, Acts 22, 14 through 16. There's another guy who definitely did not have uh, like his Christian testimony all put in order before he's baptized. Uh, you remember Saul, the persecutor of the church. And uh, we read, after he's knocked down on the ground, possibly off a horse, but we have no idea because that's not in any version. Uh, he is struck blind. He asks, who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Uh, what shall I do, Lord? Get up, the Lord says. Go into Damascus. There you will be told all you have been assigned to do. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. And, and this is Paul describing his testimony. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see. Then he said, The God of our fathers has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized and wash your sins away, calling on his name. What are you waiting for? And again, is this in the context of a large group witnessing these things? No, this is in the context of probably a couple guys in a room, or maybe there's a couple other believers that are going to help with it. Uh, It's still important that he be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And, And so I think that we can see from some of these texts that that's not the primary thing. However, in both these texts, because they're in the book of Acts, in the infancy of the church, I mean, what, what church would the Ethiopian eunuch be baptized into? The one in Ethiopia that doesn't exist yet until he gets there? 
somebody's got to be first, right? And so I'm 100% sure a generation later in Ethiopia, where the church is growing and growing, uh, that no one is baptized into nothing, just in order to make them feel good or as part of their personal journey or something. No, they're baptized into the church in Ethiopia. Yeah. Do you say that the, the example of Paul and then any other believer who started out in the Jewish community being baptized would be an answer to those saying, well, like if they were baptized as an infant because it sort of was a replacement for circumcision, that there is there's a reason and precedent as a believer to then become be baptized as a, as a believer, a believing adult, or like cognizant of what you're doing, because the Jewish believers would have gone through that. They all would have been circumcised, but they still would have been baptized. Maybe, but I think that might be overdrawing the connection between circumcision and baptism. Okay. I, I think that the fact that our understanding from Scripture that the proper subjects of baptism are those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ is all you need for, for that. Um, yeah, and we don't really know what to do with, I guess maybe that's the closest example, but we don't really know what to do from Scripture with the issue of people who are baptized as, as infants and then want to join a church because it never happens in the Bible. Right, because it makes sense that at the beginning it would all be people coming to believe whether they were Jews or Gentiles and you can't come to believe if you don't have a certain level of understanding but then as they raise their families you guess I guess you don't get that are there any like early writings that talk about like when that started when infant baptism started oh sure yeah I mean many dissertations have been written on it there are books and books and books about it sure yeah it's it's fairly early uh, it, it's not universal until centuries later, um, but yeah, it is. It is fairly fairly early. It's not. It's not like this is some late cultic edition. And I mean, that will get brought up in the debate that you're going to watch next week. And Aaron, you can watch it too. It's on Right Now Media. The historical aspect of it is certainly part of it. You know, we we want we don't want to stray from what the church has always done. Even as Baptists who say we're going to go back to the Bible as Bereans, I think one of the great proverbs about how we should interpret the Bible, uh, I, I learned from Dr. Mike Whitmer, is little ships should stay close to harbor. If you find yourself going, oh, I come up with this great idea that nobody has ever come up with before from the scriptures. No, you haven't. <laughs> you came up with... You probably came up with an old heresy that you just hadn't heard of before and you're rediscovering it. Uh, but at best, you've come up with a new heresy. Uh, and so we have to respect the scripture, sola scriptura, sola scriptura, scripture alone, does not equate to nuda scriptura, scripture naked, apart from the witness of the church over the ages. Um, and so, yeah, in any debate about who should be baptized and when, the historical aspect, the tradition of the church, the faith once for all handed down to the saints has to be part of it. And that's probably the strongest case for infant baptism is that you can take it back quite a ways. Uh, I guess it's probably time to, I hear a lot of happy kids, so it's probably time to wrap up. Does anyone have a pen? Ah, let's look at a little bit more. I'd like to bring us right up to communion for next time. So again, why are you delaying? I think that's a good, a good question. And what's to, the, the fact that there's these two questions with, with the Apostle Philip and the Apostle uh, Paul, why are you delaying and what's to hinder me? These tell us that that should maybe be the way that we approach baptism. Not, now hold on, are you ready? And I hear that a lot with young kids and I defer to parents to know when their children are ready, when they really do understand and they have the right um, experience. Uh, Kelvin, how old were you when I baptized you? Eight. eight. Kelvin's an exceptional child, but he definitely already knew the gospel and understood what baptism meant. He was a baby. <laughs> what did she say? She was, he was exceptional as a baby. Oh, right. <laughs> Maybe we should have just done it then. I don't know. But, but uh, I'm sure it's different for different children uh, when, when they can understand. I, I've had, uh, there was a 13-year-old who came to me one time and said, I want to be baptized. And I said, okay, that's awesome. Now tell me what that means to you. And her answer was, it means I'm a big part of God. And I said, 
okay, okay, I'm not sure what you mean by that. And I kept trying to walk it back and get it onto biblical footing and, and get somewhere that made some sense. And that somehow had become the line in her mind. I'm a big part of God if I get baptized. And I said, I think we need to wait on this and not do it. And a couple years later, I did baptize her. So it's a, you know, a question of, is there something to hinder? And if there is a lack of understanding or belief, that would be something to hinder. And why are you waiting? If there is a legitimate answer to why are you, you know, dragging your feet, which is the question posed to Paul, then... Poor guy. I mean, he just got his sight back. You know what? Poor Paul nothing. He wanted to drag people off to prison. I'm blind for a little while. And then he's going to go on to just like catalog all his suffering. It's like, okay, man, but did you ever catalog all the suffering you caused? Just... Sand. Um, all right, so just to sum up, baptism is a sacrament. If you understand the word sacrament correctly, if you want to, like the confession, the Baptist confession, stray away from that word, hold back from that word because you don't want to buy into kind of uh, extremes that are unbiblical, great. It is certainly still a means of grace. If we understand it correctly, it is a living picture. It is a symbol, but a symbol with power. It is a sign, but a sign that is tied inextricably and incredibly intimately closely with that which it signifies. It can't be separated from the thing that it signifies. Uh, and it is not where the person is regenerated. It is a witness that they have been regenerated. We are not in the business of, of doling out God's grace. We just celebrate and bear witness and to the extent that he allows us, we participate in his dispensation of his grace. God is doing something in baptism, and we are too. We are receiving and we are bearing witness. Uh, it is a beautiful meeting of heaven and earth. And because it happens in water, it's just like a sloppy wet kiss. Um, no one gets that reference? You guys don't read the right blogs, or you don't read the wrong blogs anyway. Heaven meets earth like a sloppy... Nah, whatever. Um, so I, I think what we want to avoid, and what I've tried to avoid, is, is what Baptists generally do, the quag they usually fall into, which is to say, I'm so busy telling the world what we believe baptism isn't that we never get around to defining what baptism is or celebrating what baptism truly is. We're kind of over here in the critic's chair looking down on everyone else for their imbuing this thing with too much meaning. And we've gone to the opposite extreme of leeching all the meaning out of something that is holy and amazing and a great gift from God. Same sort of thing that can happen with the Sabbath or any other gift from God. But it's certainly something I think we want to avoid. Uh, a sacrament is a symbol with power. In the New Testament, baptism is ordinarily linked with receiving the Holy Spirit. For example, Acts 2, 38 through 41, and lots and lots and lots of other places. In fact, in some cases, it seems to almost be shorthand for receiving the Holy Spirit. And the, the idea of baptism of the Holy Spirit uh, being used as the language uh, of receiving, I think also shows that there is a, a very close connection between water baptism and the receiving of the Holy Spirit. They go hand in hand because they both come, ideally, immediately after conversion. Baptism is both God's gift and our human response to that gift. It's a sign and a seal of the covenant of grace to the person baptized that he or she has been grafted in. Regenerated is now a new creation. All of the, the pictures that we have of new life in uh, the scriptures. And in some sense, it does answer to circumcision in that it is a one-time covenant entering event. Uh, and we're going to see next time that the Lord's Supper answers to the Passover in that it is a many times recurring memorial to something God did to rescue his people and save them. So these things just give new meaning and kind of fulfillment to the shadows of the Old Testament. Why we would then shackle it down in just that one area, you can use water, not a knife, but it's got to be an infant, I don't know other than uh, an attempt to continue uh, justifying the status quo, which is something all humans tend to do. Um, I'm going to read Colossians 2, 11 to 12 by way of closing. Good grief, Zach. There it is. Um, 
Here we go. In him you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. There you have both a correlation between circumcision of the old covenant people and baptism in the new covenant and also a great discontinuity because this is not... Uh, something that's done with hands. This is something spiritual. This is not something that is done uh, for the children of those who are part of the, the uh, covenant to bring them automatically into the covenant community, but rather this is something that is tied to uh, being buried with him in baptism, going under the water, immersion, and then uh, coming into new life, being raised with him from the dead, coming out of the water, again, immersion. It's not optional to be baptized, just like our good works don't save us, but they're not optional. And I don't understand why anyone who follows Jesus would not want to obey Jesus if they had never been baptized. And I think the question I would have for anyone in that boat would be, like Ananias, what are you waiting for? Uh, And the beauty of it is uh, at any time, someone can say, I want to be baptized. Constantine wasn't baptized until his deathbed. Uh, There are a number of instances of people who later in life uh, recognize that they needed to be baptized. It's not too late until you are literally put in the ground. Uh, And then your only hope is that uh, some Mormons somewhere will baptize you uh, in absentia. (laughs) Heavenly Father, we thank you for a look at baptism. I pray that in my scattered thoughts this morning, there's been some good content and, and some clarification. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to value this uh, beautiful sacrament, this beautiful sign and symbol and, and seal for what it is, Lord, that we would not be obsessed with saying what it's not, that we would not focus on knocking down the views and values of others, but instead would, would just be uh, overwhelmed with your grace in giving us this gift that is baptism. Uh, we thank you, Lord, that even with all the diverse views on this subject, Uh, The Church of Jesus Christ can be one despite that, that there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, uh, and that we believe, Lord, that that, uh, you have given us one body on this earth. We pray that we would, uh, as as the church, link arms together, uh, show the world that uh, Jesus is indeed Lord, and show the love and mercy and grace and forgiveness that is so greatly lacking and so frequently Uh, mocked, satirized, and counterfeited in our world, Lord, that we would be able to show these things in a way that is authentic and would draw people to the cross. We pray all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.